0: The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals presents the timeless teaching of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse.
1: There shall come an evening when there will be not the faintest conviction because of the indwelling presence of the flesh, because that flesh will be dwelling in us no more. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory.
0: The message we will be featuring on today's edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is entitled Threefold Deliverance. If an inmate is chained to his cell wall in a maximum security prison, you cannot set him free by only taking his chains off. You must also release him from his cell and allow him to get out of the prison complex. The bondage of sin is so powerful, multifaceted, and deceptively complex that we need spiritual deliverance on multiple levels. What is the threefold spiritual deliverance that sets us free from sin into a life of true holiness? The scripture text for this edition of Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, Romans chapter 7 and verses 24 and 25. Here again is Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse with a message entitled, Threefold Deliverance.
1: Through the Lord Jesus Christ we come unto thee, our Father and our God, and in the Holy Spirit. Give us knowledge, we pray thee, as true believers that will enable us to be watchful and to be faithful so that we may overcome sin and allow the life of the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be maintained in us. Bless each listening heart. We ask it in the name and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We continue our study in the seventh chapter of Romans. Who shall deliver me out of the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7, verses 24 and 5. The Holy Spirit came to dwell in the life of Paul. Immediately there were desires for perfect holiness. Immediately there came the awareness that perfect unmixed good was not possible as long as we are dwelling in the body of this death. The renewed heart cried out for deliverance and the promise of God was given immediately. There is deliverance and that deliverance is sure and certain. But in order for us to understand the true meaning of this text, it's necessary to set it in its place with all that the Bible has to say about deliverance. And deliverance in the scripture is at least threefold. When we have understood this, we shall understand how an individual who has come to long for perfect good can be delivered from the body of this death. First of all, The substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ has delivered us completely from the penalty of sin. That is not the deliverance which is spoken of in our text, but it is the deliverance upon which all further deliverance must be based. We have covered this first phase of deliverance rather completely in our study of the earlier chapters of this epistle. So we need do no more than summarize the teaching. It is to the effect that we were dead in trespasses and sins and that we merited nothing from God but condemnation and eternal death separated from him forever. But the Lord Jesus Christ came upon the scene and stepped in between the wrath of God and the sinner who deserved to feel the stroke of that wrath and Jesus took the blow of that divine wrath upon himself in order to pay the penalty for us forever. Every demand that a holy God could ever make was fully met by the Lord Jesus Christ in his person and his work. All of the guilt of the believer was placed upon the Savior by God the Father himself, who made Christ redemption unto us. The death of the Son of God was caused by the Father, who in his divine justice struck him in full out pouring of divine wrath against sin. Thus it was that Isaiah could say, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. And the death of Christ, as Peter says in the Pentecostal address, was a planned fact, since he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Now this deliverance was not only negative in that it took all of our sins and placed them upon the Savior in his death, but it is also positive in that it took the righteousness of God and put it to our account, joining us, uniting us to Christ in his resurrection. So uniting us to him that God can look upon us even as he looks upon his Son. We have been made accepted in the Beloved and we have been made the righteousness of God in Christ. It would be absolutely impossible for a holy God to have anything whatsoever against one whose sin had been placed on the Savior and to whose account the righteousness of God has been placed. We have been justified. That is the deliverance which has been given unto us by the death of the Savior on the cross. Secondly, As a result of the fruits of that work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we were seen by God to be joined to the risen Lord Jesus so that his resurrection life might be ours today by faith in the provision which has been made for our triumphant living. When the Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, he sent forth the Holy Spirit to dwell within the hearts of believers and to make triumphant, victorious living possible. Beyond any question, the Bible teaches that it is possible for a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ to live day by day without the outbreak of the Adamic sinfulness in deeds that violate the desires of God expressed in his loving commandments. As we have seen in our last study, the seepage of the old nature is constantly with us so that we need daily cleansing, and momentary cleansing. And there will be times when the Adamic nature does break out because of our lack of watchfulness and faithfulness. But the possibility of continued, uninterrupted fellowship with God is flatly taught in the word of God. Since we are told in Galatians 5.16, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And as though to nail the matter down and make it impossible to avoid the implication, the context still further states, and they that are Christs have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Now all of this is most exceedingly solemn, and every everyone who is a professing believer should most carefully test his profession by this and other similar statements. There is deliverance from the power of the works of the flesh. And the mark of the true believer is that he has accepted that deliverance and is walking in it. About a quarter of a century ago, I came across a little leaflet with a few paragraphs on this subject. They appealed to me so strikingly that I preserved them and wish to pass on a portion of that searching word to you. There are in all probability a far greater number of nominal Christians on earth today than ever before when we take into consideration the vast extensions which have been made in the boundaries of Christendom during the last century, both at home and abroad, when we note the multiplication of churches, seminaries, Bible institutes, and so on, when we attempt to calculate the millions who are members of the various sects and denominations, and then compare them, as far as it is possible, with those of previous generations, We believe we are quite safe in saying that there is a vastly larger number today who profess to be believers and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ than ever before. On the other hand, we sincerely doubt whether there ever was a time during the last 19 centuries when there were such multitudes of men and women whose lives belied their lips, whose walk repudiates their talk. Not only are there hundreds of thousands of those whose names are yet preserved on church rolls and registers, who never attend a prayer meeting and who are present at the Sunday services only once or twice each year, not only are there millions of professing Christians who rarely, if ever, read the scripture for themselves and who are in total ignorance of its most elementary teachings, not only is it evident to any God-fearing man or woman with anointed eye, that vain are the spiritual pretensions of the vast multitudes in Christendom who are lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. But it is greatly to be feared that many, very many of those who have considerable head knowledge of God's truth and who are regular attenders at preaching services, Bible conferences, and so on, are nevertheless deceived souls. We read in Proverbs thirty twelve. There is a generation that is pure in their own eyes and yet is not washed from their filthiness. The mere fact that a man believes the Bible to be the word of God proves nothing. The demons also believe and tremble, James tells us. That a person is sincere in regarding himself as on the road to heaven proves nothing. For there is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. A man may have all knowledge, faith to remove mountains, Bestow all his goods to feed the poor, yea, give his body to be burned. Yet if he has not love, that love which is expressed and manifested by obedience to Christ's word, then he is nothing, we read in 1 Corinthians 13. And if he is nothing, certainly he is not a regenerated child of God. A tree is known by its fruits, said our Lord Jesus. And this is an infallible criterion, both in the natural and the spiritual realm. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. The test for love of Christ is obedience to his commandments. Profession is proved or disproved by the daily walk. If a man has no love for spiritual things, he is devoid of a spiritual nature. If a man is in an utterly prayerless state, he has not received the spirit of adoption whereby the saved cries, Abba, Father. If a man is thoroughly wrapped up in the things of this world, then his eyes must be closed to the glories of heaven. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If a man prefers the company of worldlings to that of God's people, then is he a worldling himself. If a man lives to please self rather than God, he is yet dead in trespasses and sins. Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, we read in James 2. A faith which does not transform the life, which does not produce practical godliness, which does not issue in personal obedience to God in the daily walk, is not the faith of God's elect, as it is called in Titus. The grace of God which brings salvation to a soul also teaches that soul to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts and to live soberly and righteously and godly in this present age. Christ gave himself for a people who should be zealous of good works. Those born of the Spirit have been created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. If then I am not walking in good works, I have no right to regard myself as a regenerated soul. If my professing brethren are not zealous of good works, then as yet I have no scriptural reason to regard them as among that favored number for whom Christ gave himself. Good works are not required in order to obtain salvation, but they are the certain fruit of salvation. Near the close of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus spoke of two foundations on which men build their houses. The one on the rock, the other on the sand. Many professing Christians are familiar with this figure, but very few can define correctly without looking up the passage, the particular characters whom the Lord described as building on rock and sand. Who is the one who builds on the rock? Who is the one who builds upon the sand? What is it that differentiates the one builder from the other? How many of you listeners can answer without consulting your Bibles? Now, Christ did not there say that the builder on the rock was a believer, while the builder on the sand was an unbeliever. Instead, he said, Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to a wise man which builds his house upon the rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which build his house upon the sand. We remember in the epistle of John that we read, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Does such language sound harsh to you? If so, your ears are too fastidious. Let none be found murmuring against them, for they are the words of the thrice holy God. Honesty is always outspoken. It is the casuist who dissemble. Truth is always plain and to the point. It is error that needs the artificial elegancies of speech to embellish it. Faithfulness never flatters. Far better is to be made miserable by truth's exposure than to have a false peace maintained by Satan, the father of lies. He that saith, I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Let it not be overlooked that the apostle whom God first employed to write these words was the apostle of love, the one who leaned upon the master's bosom. But love is faithful, and faithfulness calls for a real endeavor to disillusion deluded souls. It is a spurious charity which, out of fear of hurting another's feelings, makes no effort to expose the lie on which he is resting the more so because that lie will damn him for all eternity if not abandoned and turned from. Better far to be made wretched now while there is hope of sorrow being turned to joy than to weep and wail forever and ever. Though such be not its central theme nor its chief purpose, yet the first epistle of John might well be designated the testing of Christian profession much in it is exceedingly pertinent to the days in which we live. For these are the perilous times foretold in 2 Timothy 3, in which live multitudes who have a form of godliness, but who deny the power thereof. Three times over in the first chapter of John's epistle, we find the words, if we say, if we say, if we say. And three times in the second chapter, he that saith, he that saith, he that that saith, each of these is followed by a statement which shows that the mere saying is not enough. Then in 1 John 3, 7, we read, Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. And again in 3:18, we're told, My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And thus is profession tested and put to the proof. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. There are many in these days who do say, I know him, who are loud in declaring that they have a saving knowledge of him, but who keep not his commandments. Yet so blatant is the lawless antinomian spirit of this age, that there is a large section of professing Christians headed by men claiming great proficiency in rightly dividing the word of truth, who insist that grace and law are mortal enemies and that to press commands upon people, even the commandments of God, is seeking to bind on them a burden grievous to be borne. But apart from these extremists, the rank and file of professing Christians evidence little or no subjection to the law of God. How few today respect the command concerning the Lord's day. How grievously is that day desecrated. How few regard the word, oh, no man, anything. Professing Christians run into debt as freely as do non-professors. Christian parents are bidden to bring up their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Are they doing so? Servants are ordered to be obedient to their master's with fear and trembling as unto Christ. Are they? Wives are bidden to submit themselves to their husbands as unto the Lord, and this in everything. Do they? Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ also loved the church, and to give honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Do they? And the list might be prolonged almost indefinitely. Christians are ordered never to listen to gossip, And in the case where it refers to a leader in the church, they are to insist on two or three witnesses being present, as we read in 1 Timothy 4.4. Against an elder, receive not an accusation except before two or three witnesses. One woman brazenly told me that if she obeyed that verse in the Bible, she would never hear what was going on. Now the terrible thing is that violations of these and other commandments of God are regarded as trifles things of little moment, but be not deceived. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. May the Holy Spirit apply this searching word to your hearts. We may conclude, then, that there is present deliverance provided for every believer against the outbreaks of the Adamic nature, and that the Lord furnishes the deliverance to us day by day, moment by moment, and that the marks of a true believer include the appropriation of that deliverance for general victory. The professing Christian who habitually practices sin cannot be considered as regenerated in the Bible sense of the term. We look at our own selves and are thankful that we deal with the God of all grace and that he alone is able to discern the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now with these two phases of deliverance dealt with, it is possible to return to our text in Romans in order to understand a third phase of deliverance, which is specifically presented here. In the light of what we have seen in previous studies, we see that the coming of the Holy Spirit has awakened immediately a special sensitiveness within the true believer, and that there is an earnest desire for pure and perfect unmixed good. The spirit is immediately aware of the seepage of the flesh within the life and aware that this seepage taints ever so faintly all our desires for this perfect good. We cry out for deliverance and we are answered the deliverance is certain, but we must understand that this third deliverance is yet future. There shall come an evening when there will be not the faintest conviction because of the indwelling presence of the flesh. Because that flesh will be dwelling in us no more. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So, when this corruption shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, this thought will be developed more fully in the eighth chapter of Romans when we come to the paragraph that deals with the redemption of our bodies. But in the meantime, we have the sure promise of God, and we can know with certainty that actual deliverance from even the presence of sin will be ours as a present possession. There will be an evening when we have no sin to confess, and when we shall know perfect unmixed good without any warring desire of the flesh against it. At that time we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, and that likeness shall include his own holiness. Then we shall go beyond the liberty of which Paul writes to the Galatians, and which we know now, the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free. And then we shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Truly we can say, thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And our God and Father, we pray thee to bless the truth to each heart. If there are any who listen who have not been born again, give them restlessness that they may know no peace till they rest in Christ. Especially we pray for professing Christians who have a form of godliness but who deny the power thereof. Bring them to see the deceitfulness of their position and bring them to life in Christ and victory through him. And upon all thy redeemed own, may thy grace, thy mercy, and thy peace abide. And to Thee be all glory now, till our Lord Jesus come again and forever. Amen.
0: Jesus Christ paid the full penalty for our sin at the cross. His resurrection life delivers us from the power of sin, and our future hope includes full deliverance from the presence of sin. We hope you have benefited from today's message by Dr. Barnhouse, entitled, "Threefold Deliverance. You can listen to additional Bible teaching by the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse via the Internet by visiting the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals website at alliancenet.org. An audio copy of today's teaching is available by calling us toll free 1 800 488 1888. Today's message again is entitled Threefold Deliverance, or simply request message number R7 17. We would also like to make available to you a free copy of our booklet entitled Temptation and How to Meet It. Temptation comes to us by the world, the flesh, and the devil, and pulls us away from God towards sin and disobedience. How can we effectively fight against its powerful influence? This free booklet traces the history of temptation, identifies its various sources and manifestations, and outlines the biblical strategies for effectively dealing with temptation in whatever form it takes. Ask for your free copy of Temptation and how to meet it when you call or write. Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible is a radio ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals headquartered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We exist to promote a biblical understanding and worldview For more information or to make a contribution to support and further our work, please contact us by writing Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19103, or call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Visit us online at alliancenet.org.